0: If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health
1: Podcast Network.
0: For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit (laughs) healthpodcastnetwork.com.
1: i think people should say hawaii correctly too so yes. let's just say it correctly <laughs> again let's just hawaii. repeat
0: it it's hawaii Hawaii. Yeah. hawaii okay. the w is sometimes pronounced as a v but there's definitely what we call an okina between the two i's that make it a e sound on the end so, yeah.
1: hawaii hi you're listening to healthcare for humans podcast the podcast dedicated to educating you how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. This episode is about Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Being in Washington, when you hear Hawaii, you probably think about your next vacation. I'm there with you. After we had our first child, that's the first place we went to after 18 months of no travel. Our first vacation after the peak of the pandemic. But we often fall into this trap of thinking it's a place to visit and escape from our own lives. But it's a place with its own history, culture, and people that has been overshadowed by tourism and harmed by economic exploitation and militarism. Think about this. Due to both economic factors and disproportionately high rates of chronic diseases, like heart disease, diabetes, and asthma, in 14 of 27 states with available data, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders had the highest death rates from COVID, compared with any other racial or ethnic groups. Specifically in Washington state, at one point, if you were Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, compared to white populations you had four times higher risk of getting COVID, ten times higher risk of getting hospitalized, and six times higher risk of dying. This isn't a place where more Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders live than anywhere in the U.S., outside of Hawaii and California. In fact, King County is home to the eighth largest population of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders out of all U.S. counties. So it's imperative we know how to care for the people of Hawaii better. We'll be talking about Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders today, with more of a focus on Native Hawaiians. I want to briefly review the history of Hawaii and the enduring effects of militarism and capitalism before we get started, because I think it's important to know this context. Some brief facts about Hawaii. Of the total population, 15% are Native Hawaiians, 14% Filipino Americans and 13% Japanese Americans. Now, let's review the history of Hawaii. Let's do a Cliff Notes version here. Remember, the history of Hawaii is a recent history. Around 400 to 1200 CE, people from the surrounding islands slowly migrated to what's known as current Hawaii. There's creation of chiefdoms and slow growth of population based on agriculture and ocean fishing. In 1778, James Cook arrived. For those of you who don't remember, James Cook was a British explorer and captain in the British Royal Navy. After his arrival, word got out and there was an influx of European and American explorers. And of course, they didn't come alone. They brought with them syphilis, gonorrhea, TB, smallpox, and who knows what else. And reduced the native population from about a million to 40,000 by 1890. Yeah, you heard that right. Reduced the population by more than 90%. In 1893, Western businessmen decided that Hawaii was too valuable to be independent and overthrew the Hawaiian monarch. In 1893, Western businessmen decided that Hawaii was too valuable to be independent and overthrew the Hawaiian monarch. In 1898, Hawaii was officially annexed to the U.S. In 1959, Hawaii became the 50th state. And in 1993, U.S. Congress passed a joint apology resolution, which was a formal apology, signed by President Bill Clinton for U.S.'s role in the overthrow. So where does Washington history connect to this? In early 1800s, Pacific Islanders came to Washington State. Many came to support early missionaries and provide labor for a lot of early business ventures, like the Hudson Bay Company. You'll hear more about this history in this episode. Last thing to review before the episode is about the bigger forces of our society that has affected Hawaii as a land. The history of Hawaii is a history that shows the consequences of economic exploitation and militarism. I think this is important to understand because it has direct implications to the mental and spiritual health of the people from Hawaii. First, let's start with militarism. Military presence in Hawaii began in order to expand the U.S. trade with Asia and expand its influence in the Pacific. That was a primary reason for the U.S. interest in Hawaii, which led to the overthrow and the subsequent annexation. At one point, military population, including dependents and veterans, reached 16% of Hawaii's population. That's almost as much as the local population, which was at 19% at that time. Its presence continues to this day. Right now, U.S. has a large naval command with approximately 50,000 military personnel and they control 5% or so of the land. So what does this mean to the people of Hawaii? Military presence has led to contamination of the land with toxic waste, unexploded ordnance, and radiation. At the root of it, it has led to the loss of aina. Aina in Hawaiian has a literal definition of the land, but it means so much more. It often translates to love the land and our need to respect it, care for it, and honor the gifts it provides us. The Native Hawaiian relationship to Aina is defined by a mutual, caring relationship to the land, in contrast to the European-American concept of land as something to be used for human recreation and progress. As I said before, this is a recent history and your patience, remember. The second large force that has affected Hawaii is economic exploitation. There was a succession of dominant industries in Hawaii. Sandalwood, whaling, sugarcane, pineapple, and then finally, tourism. Oftentimes, this wasn't a symbiotic relationship, though. For example, sugarcane plantations were tightly controlled by American missionary families who monopolized the sugar industry's profits. Since Hawaii became a state in 1959, tourism has been the largest industry. It has provided, of course, jobs and tax revenue for the state. But that has come with a cost. We don't often think about it, but tourism has had damaging effects on the environment, leading to problems such as water shortages, and has led to overcrowding and rising living costs. The living costs are so high that many people can't even live there who are born there. These are real, life-changing consequences for Native Hawaiians. It's important to remember that. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Maile Tawali'i about Native Hawaiian history and culture. Dr. Maile Tawali'i is an assistant clinical investigator for Hawaii Permanente Medical Group. She's a Washington native, and she received her PhD in health services and MPH from the University of Washington. She's an innovator and a national leader. In Hawaii, she established the world's first global indigenous MPH program, and it was awarded the University of Hawaii Board of Regents Excellence in Teaching Award. In this episode, we talk about the categorization of Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community and how it came to be, the history of Hawaii and the history of Native Hawaiians in Washington, how that history has led to a distrust of healthcare systems, what we mean when we say nourishing food, and avoiding a common mistake that many clinicians make with people from Hawaii. Of note, you'll hear that Hawaiian breeze in the background of our wonderful guest throughout this episode that could not be edited out. It was probably best to leave it in anyway. Here's Dr. Miley Tawali'i. All right. Welcome to the show, Miley.
0: Thank you for having me. It's very exciting and wonderful to have this opportunity.
1: Yeah. Thank you for joining us. And I want you to say your full name because we need to get it right.
0: Miley Tawali'i.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. It would be helpful, actually, for people to understand what Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islanders mean, because often we lump together Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander with the Asian American Pacific Islander community, so people get lumped to these bigger and bigger groups. But let's just break down Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander and what that means.
0: Okay, sure. We could spend the entire time just talking about this, because there's so many very extensive differences between federal government categorization, colonial terms, and how we as Pacific people identify. So I'll start with the legal definition, which you see in the census. Native Hawaiian and, capital O, other Pacific Islander, which you see in legal documents. That is a Office of Management and Budget category created in 1997 as a really important push to separate Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders from the broader Asian Pacific Islander category. This was a huge ordeal. Anytime a category gets created at the United States government level, There's a lot of conversation about, is this the right definition? Who is included? How is it defined? And specifically using the words and other in not just Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders is because of the legal relationship that Native Hawaiians have with the federal government as a result of the illegal overthrow of the Native Hawaiian nation by the United States. Native Hawaiians American Samoans, and Chamorros from the island of Guam are also under the category of Native American. So when people say Native American, they're actually saying American Indians, Alaska Native Hawaiians, Samoans from American Samoa, and Chamorro, and most people don't know that, and that has to do with specific legislation. We, however, as Pacific people, don't use any of those terms. We actually have very specific names that are for ourselves. Native Hawaiians don't consider themselves necessarily. Native Hawaiians, we call ourselves kanaka maoli or kanaka oivi. This concept of native Hawaiian has to do with colonial impact and just creating a state, Hawaii as a state, and those who are native in that state are native Hawaiians. There's these other terms, Polynesian, Melanesian, Micronesian, also terms never used by Pacific peoples. We are in one large ocean, the largest highway in the world, and we are a connective voyaging people who have always interacted with each other. And so this idea that there's Micronesia and there's Melanesia, those are not things that people of the Pacific really identify as. Those definitions and those terms are really, I think, a way to show some political boundaries. So, I mean, these words are just weird and how they defined us based on these terms are not terms any of us in the Pacific actually use. You'll hear Oceania as a term that we will call ourselves. You'll hear Pacifica or Pacific peoples. But this idea of the difference between Polynesian, Melanesian, and Micronesian, no one should ever use those terms.
1: Okay, that's good to know because anytime I look up information, that's what comes up. So with that context, tell me your story. You grew up in Seattle, but now you're in Hawaii, right?
0: Yeah, I made the return home. This ties into the history of why people are up there in Washington states. Hawaiians have been traveling to Washington and the West Coast for 200 some years. And my father, Kauai boy, grew up in a tiny town, decided he was going to leave the islands to be successful and to make a go at it because being from a small town on Kauai and being brown, you don't really have a lot of options back in the 40s and 50s. So he left and worked at Boeing for a number of years and met my mom over there who is actually one of the Buckley family, like uh, the family of from Buckley, Washington, the Rose family that has, I think, been there since the wagon train days. So two pioneer families came together and I was born there in Seattle. So yeah, that's my story. I moved back after finishing my PhD at the University of Washington, came back home to Hawaii to build a, a Native Hawaiian master's degree program in public health, as well as to open a Native Hawaiian Epidemiology Center to try to help with data collection on Native people.
1: And I don't want to undersell your achievements. It was the first global Indigenous Master of Public Health degree program. And you were actually given an award in the University of Hawaii. I want to call that out.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was a, a program to really help combine the idea of data being so important and being visible in data. I had done that work with the tribes and Indian people in cities, making sure there's visibility for urban Indians. I really wanted to continue that work and make sure there was visibility, especially with so much being conflated with that Asian Pacific Islander category. The work that I did at the university was to help create sort of a public health army of Native professionals who were skilled and trained in the area of looking at the law to make sure that there was visibility among Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you are also working in research and a partnership talking about cultural safety with Kaiser there in Hawaii. Is that right?
0: I am an employee of Hawaii Permanente Medical Group. So I do a lot to talk to people about how do you do a better job for your patient? How do you connect with them? How do you understand what their needs are so that you can get them to be a partner in in taking care of their own health? Because at the end of the day, they're going to walk out and what you say may or may not matter. And then I also do research. My job is I've got to end health disparities. That's like my I wake up every morning going, let's end health disparities. <laughs> I'm yeah, a strong yeah, yeah. believer that Kaiser medicine, Kaiser Permanente medicine is the only way we can do that. Not a lot of healthcare systems that think about social needs along with health care and that they walk hand in hand. So it's an amazing place.
1: Okay, let's start with history. I'm sure. a strong believer that understanding history is important to understand the context of a patient's health, but also their background and what they've been through. I don't know where to start with history. Should we start with Captain Cook? Well, I don't...
0: <laughs> it's so hard to because there's Native Hawaiian history, there's the Pacific history, and then there's like the history of Pacific people in Washington state. And so I I think where I'd start with the history is just let people know that native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders are very well represented in Washington state. And they've been there for over 200 plus years. Captain Vancouver, actually, not Captain Cook, Mm. is who brought some of the first native Hawaiians to the Washington area. They boarded his ship because they, won were voyagers. And they were like, let's go check this out and we have a lot of families who trace their genealogy back 200 years to Native Hawaiians who have been intermarrying and creating lives with a lot of the coastal Indian tribes there's even a city there in Washington state which everybody pronounces incorrectly by calling it Kalama Washington but it's actually Kalama Washington Kalama is a very large strong Maui family the Kalama people the Kalama family is from Maui and that history goes back A really long time. The history here in Hawaii is we've been seeing for hundreds of years big trees wash up on our shore. So even Mm. before Captain Cook, just talking about our history as a people, long before colonialism and and these captains who were sailing around, Mm -hmm. I was going to say other things about them, but let's just skip it too. (laughs) But our people, we were sailors and navigators. And uh, the fact that we see things like the sweet potato. In our diet, we know that didn't come from the islands. We know that comes from Chile. So our people have been long before these captains were picking up islanders. I believe our people were navigating back and forth because they saw these logs arrive and they probably were like, hey, let's go see where these logs are coming from. It wasn't really hard for Pacific people because they were able to navigate the ocean's In very short periods of time, and like the trip to Tahiti is like seven to ten days. That's like a weekend trip. We're pretty positive that our people were all over the Pacific. And you can see that in some of the artwork in the Northwest Coast. It looks very similar to a lot of Pacific Island artwork. And so I think our people were interacting long before Captain Cook and Captain Vancouver started getting in our hair. But the history of Hawaiian people, to know just a little bit about Hawaii, just a quick sort of nutshell.
1: And I think people should say Hawaii correctly, too. So let's yes. just say it correctly. <laughs> Again, let's just Hawaii. repeat it.
0: it. It's Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Hawaii. Okay. The W is sometimes pronounced as a V, but there's definitely what we call an okina between the two I's that make it a E sound on the end. So, yeah. Hawaii. Um, Thank you for of course. that moment.
1: <laughs> okay, <keep
0: going. laughs> so Hawaii, the history here in the islands, we know that when Captain Cook arrived, there was probably a million Kanaka in the islands. Hawaiians were here since 400-some AD. Long, just amazing, rich culture, strong democracies, strong ali'i, strong monarchy, lots of very well-structured governing systems. And then we talk about the arrival of the Western world and its impact on our shores. Valentine's Day is sometimes referred to as Captain Cook Day because that's the day in which he was murdered and killed on our shores by Hawaiians because he violated our protocol and promises made to Native Hawaiian people. The rest of the Pacific kind of goes, yay. That's the history with him in that 1778. And then we're talking 100 years later, those who came as missionaries were given land to start churches. Their children, such as Sanford B. Dole and others, illegally overthrow our nation and dethrone our queen in prison in her own palace for the sake of basically American consumerism. And our queen, Lili'uokalani, looks at international law knowing that this is the United States' first illegal act of war on a peaceful people. And it goes down in history. Fast forward to 1993. Clinton offers the apology that says my bad, our bad, we did illegally take your land. And that has always established that Hawaii should never have been part of the United States. So anyway, that creates a lot of distrust. That's the beginning stages of the distrust of the word of the Western world. Contact for Hawaiians was 1778, illegal overthrow, 1893. 1993, 100 years later, which all of us remember 93, this is a recent history, a history that people still remember. And they carry that forward in Their relationships with the Western world and the systems like education and policing and medical systems and the idea that not every promise that's made to you is a promise that will be kept. And so that history is incredibly relevant. And not just Native Hawaiians, Pacific people, if you look at the Compact of Free Association areas, which are the Micronesian population who are in Washington state in pretty large numbers, they have also been made promises like, we will not bomb your lands, then some pretty horrible instances of nuclear testing done in the Pacific. And just the fallout of basically nuclear poisons have really impacted the health of those people. That gives you a little perspective on history. There's some distrust there. And a lot of it has to do with military and with consumerism and capitalism and that the outside's desire for our island's takes precedent over the needs of those whose homes are those islands. It's really set up for us to be the entertainment, to be the subject of people's fascination versus a place that is sacred that should be respected and upheld. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of frustration, and that carries through in the way that we engage with systems that we don't necessarily feel are really set up to care for us. They're set up to deal with us not nurture us.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to encompass that. You mentioned the hurt and frustration, but there were lives lost. I mean, one statistic that I saw because of the introduction of diseases and the contact from Western folks, like at one point, one in eight Native Hawaiians had died from first contact to the lowest demographic in 1950. Is that right?
0: Yep. Yep. We believe 90% drop in population in a period of less than 60 to 70 years. And that's Like within a memory, that's within a lifespan that you see your population drop so dramatically. And Hawaii wasn't the only place that was impacted by that. We know that French Polynesia, Tahiti also experienced the similar drops in population. So that legacy of infectious disease is very remembered and still happening today as we look at the statistics of the number of Pacific Island people who were impacted by COVID-19 and the death rates in our population.
1: Yeah, it's long lasting and devastating effects to mental health is one. You mentioned the testing of nuclear weapons. And I think you mentioned Micronesia, but I think specifically it was Marshall Islands had such a high mortality rate from COVID and actually have higher cancer rates, all because we know of the introduction, nuclear waste in the entire island for strategic purposes, right? Yep.
0: So when you as a healthcare system say, we're here to help you, we've heard we're here to help you before. (laughs)
1: We're here to offer
0: you something that you don't have when a lot of folks in the Pacific were a little bit leery of what
1: the West has to offer us. Yeah. And you mentioned the immigration to Washington. So there are communities here in Washington. Do you feel like you had a tight network of the Pacific Islander community? Is there specific neighborhoods that people should know about? I'm sure that's constantly changing.
0: Yeah. I think like every community in Washington state as Seattle and it's out skirts. I grew up in a Seattle where the Central districts was where people of color were growing up. My family actually lived on Beacon Hill because my parents weren't allowed to live somewhere else. So South Ends were where people of color reside. And that currently, that South End is like pushing further South as gentrification and just Costs of homes in the Seattle area, moving more and more communities south who are communities of color. Those are really strong populations of Pacific Islanders, and therefore resources have popped up. And then the more resources you have there, then you have more Pacific Islander communities tapping in and feeling like those are places where they are welcome and have support systems.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about food. Sure. I think for specifically Native Hawaiian food, we need to be careful about, as you mentioned, both commercialism, militarism, capitalism has tainted the culture and made it as an entertainment. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things are sacred and the food is for nourishing purposes, not just for tourists to come and, and enjoy and comment on. We just review that history of how essentially Western countries, different people who are coming there to visit, overwhelmingly changed the social structure and lifestyle, changed the land from subsistence, agriculture, and communal lands to something commercialized. But talk about what is a nourishing diet for you in a traditional diet? What do you still eat? What do you crave? Like, What does that mean when we're counseling about nutrition?
0: I think the most important place to start, and I just have to be really clear, now we're getting into cultural histories that are to Native Hawaiians and not necessarily the same for your Samoan population. There are some similarities, but a huge part of cultural practices are influenced by who did the colonizing. And so Hawaii was colonized by a different set of missionaries than those who were in Samoa, Tahiti. Micronesia. So there's differences in the way that our culture has come through and culture is food, food is culture, they're tied together. So from a Hawaiian perspective, the most important thing to start with when it comes to food is that food is the most sacred aspect of our culture. It is our origins. So the stories that we live by that are not necessarily just stories but our genealogy and they define who we are as Kanaka. So Native Hawaiians trace their genealogy back to the sky father and the earth and their daughter, Kalani and the firstborn child that is stillborn, stillborn child placed in the earth, it becomes kalo, taro, which is the staple of the Native Hawaiian diet as well as many Pacific Island diets, Taro kalo is our word for it. The firstborn child that is from the body of that child comes kalo. The second child is the first human being. And the relationship between younger brother and older sibling is that nurturing relationship. When you care for the land, the land will care for you. And that's not just like a really nice thing to eat. It's our body of our ancestor. It's who we are genetically as a people. We trace our genealogy to a plant that was eaten every meal, every day by all Hawaiians, It's not just a plant. So when you eat it, you're eating and being nourished by your sibling. So to not have that is a huge impact on people's health. So when you talk to Hawaiians or anyone from the Pacific, they will talk about their craving of native foods, of their traditional foods. And they're not just like, oh, I really like the way it tastes. It's that mana, that life source that it connects me to the land. It connects me to thousand generations of Hawaiians, of ancestors. It's our cultural food. It's our spirituality. It's who we are as a people. It's our philosophy of life. And that's why we grow it today and we work so hard to ensure access to this traditional food. I remember being in Seattle and just trying to figure out, okay, when does the poi get delivered to Wajamaya in Chinatown and just be like, okay, I think it's Thursday. And like, you get there and like 15 minutes, there's all these happy Polynesians standing in line <laughs> and no more Poi on the shelves. And it's devastating. And really growing up in Seattle in in the, 80s and 90s, it was not that common that you could get access to a lot of our foods. And it was Wajamaya or different Asian grocery stores that might bring it in from Hawaii. But today it's a little bit more accessible because the population is so much larger. There's a demand, there's the market for it. So you can get more access to native groceries, native produce, traditional foods, and replacements, stuff that that'll work. It's close enough. I'll prepare it the same way that I did traditionally. Food is really important. Food is not just something you're craving. It is a connection to your ancestors. And, and people really have big ono for that. Ono is like craving. It's like delicious. And they want that because it feeds them emotionally as well as spiritually. So that's the traditional aspect of food. Then there's things that have been kind of twisted, like this idea that spam is part of our like native diet. It's like, oh, let's unpack that a bit. Spam. And I told my children early on it meant spare parts from anonymous meats because I was trying to gross them out, <laughs> but not for Hawaii people. Like, doesn't matter, Hawaii people, we're the largest consumers of spam on the planet. And this idea, like, that's traditional. It's like, Really? Meat in a can? Like, I'm pretty sure that's military rations. And that's what it was. Yeah. It was World War II yeah. military rations that Native people were exchanging, like these beautiful foods that hunting and cooking and preparing. To cook meat in Hawaiian, in a Hawaiian traditional way, that's like a dig a hole, start a fire. It's a 12-hour process. And then these military guys come with spam in a can, and they're like, what? Look, just pop it open. And Hawaiians were like, holy, that's amazing. I'll give you all my delicious, amazing island food in exchange for your meat in a can. Yeah, so there's rumor that there are hidden warehouses of spam on the island in case of a hurricane so that we as a people will sustain ourselves (laughs) on spare parts from anonymous meats. But yeah, those are. And I think that
1: was an abuse of trust, right, with the military rations of somebody saying you can trust us this is good this is good food what we're doing is the right thing (laughs) again linking to the mistrust
0: yeah Yeah. And then the other aspect, too, is now Hawaiian food or Hawaii food is becoming more and more popular. Like, I don't know anybody in Washington State who hasn't tried a poke bowl. It's pronounced usually incorrectly up there, but it's poke.
1: That's what people say, I'm saying.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And just so you know, and whether you want to edit this, poke actually means penis in Samoan. So it's really not a good.
1: Yeah, I need to leave that in so people don't say it.
0: <laughs> but pokémon's yeah. cubed fish and it's actually created sort of a shortage in the pacific because places all over the united states are wanting tropical raw fish and that's how we sustain ourselves but y- even in here in hawaii i live in a, a remote town on oahu there will be tourist bus that will stop at our like local tiny grocery store that has some of the best poke and i won't say the name because i don't want more tourists but there's people
1: flying from washington oh yeah to
0: go get our raw (laughs) fish and it's a shortage on the islands it's pretty crazy but that's how our culture becomes popular culture actually creates a vacuum hole in the pacific and yeah it might increase those who are fishing to fill line their pockets but they aren't necessarily hawaiian fishermen they're people who live in Hawaii who are fishing and then exporting our traditional staple foods out to other places because everyone else has figured out that eating it like that is like, it's like sushi only. You don't have to fill up on the rice. You can just eat the good part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that. So you mentioned a few foods. Is there any other foods that we should know about? Or if somebody comes to me in Washington, just was diagnosed with diabetes, heart disease. What is actually a culturally appropriate way of providing diet education? Right.
0: It depends on how the provider is able to comfortably navigate a conversation. Because in this conversation, there is, there's a conversation about loss of connections to islands. But The message that should come across is that rice is not a native food of the Pacific Islander populations. Rice comes from an Asian influence that is huge and prominent in our culture. And many of our people are both Hawaiian as well as Asian. There's a lot of mixed populations, but rice is cheap compared to our native foods. And so there's this idea that the typical plate needs two scoops rice, two scoops mac salad, and then a big old portion of meat and salad is, like, I always remind people, like, we got to use that word very loosely because macaroni and mayonnaise does not make salad. But <laughs> This is that local style. Yeah. And so this idea of providers talking to patients about that rice is a big contributor to our diabetes. It is a very simple sugar that gets broken down in the body so quickly. When we lived on a traditional diet of breadfruit, of starches, those are complex carbohydrates. But when you don't have access to it because of cost, because of geography, you replace it with something that just has over the years become a cultural replacement. So I think a provider reminding or having a conversation about traditional foods and just saying some of the foods are very common in Pacific Islander families are actually replacement foods. So when people think about like, why are Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, why do we see such high rates of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity? It's because of the replacement foods. It's not because of the Native foods. And we've done a lot of research looking at the Indigenous Native Hawaiian diet which does not have rice. And it is incredible as far as just the way that the body responds and reacts to it. So in Washington state, you have additional challenges, meaning that poi and kalo isn't as available at every grocery store. You gotta go to that one place on a Thursday at early to try to get access to it. And not every family has that ability. So talking to families about the things that they choose to replace that hole of that traditional food that's not there anymore, Mm. I think is a good conversation starter to say your basic foods may not be available to you. What are you replacing it with? And are those things as good for you as your native foods? And, And maybe even think about Pacific Islander communities working with industry to try to say, look, there's a market for us to bring in some of these native foods, bring in frozen breadfruit, bring in frozen kalo, because we should be able to utilize that in Washington state. They could totally have access to it. And you have the numbers to, to demand it. Just informing and having providers be aware that having access to traditional food is not so easy and that the replacement ones are actually the ones causing all of the problems that we're seeing show up in the medical record.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's an important question to ask. Let's break down some of this because everybody will know know about poke. Good job. So, but poi is a cooked and mashed, I think it's lightly fermented taro too, right? Is it? (laughs) If, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I've had it, but is that what it is? Did I get it right? It's
0: not necessarily ferment. By the time it gets to Washington State, it usually is, but we're spoiled and a little bougie. Here in Hawaii, we have advanced our access to traditional foods so much, but in Washington State, you're dealing with whatever comes your way. Kalo is the raw form. It's actually slightly poisonous when not cooked properly because it has a crystalline structure that actually can make you have like a, an itchy mouth, an itchy throat, and it's irritating. And so, people are a little hesitant on cooking it if they don't know how to cook it correctly. And so I always tell people the Instapot is your best friend when it comes to cooking traditional food. You could put a whole breadfruit in there. You could put kalo in there. And kalo in its raw form lasts a really long time. So we could ship that to you folks and do a class on Instapotting cooking of traditional foods still a lot harder than rice and a lot more expensive and a lot more work. Poi is how you'll see it a lot of times in the Hawaiian community up there Mm -hmm. in Washington state because it's a lot of work to get it to that place. And poi is really marketed pretty well and it's gotten out.
1: But by the time Mm -hmm. it
0: gets to you folks, it's not nearly as good as the way that it is here in the islands. We have a lot of fresh poi. And a lot of folks who moved away like my dad when they were kids, it just doesn't fill the hole the same way. It's watery, old. This is that mental health piece. People are filling the home with something else because you just can't get the same things. And it's not just the the kalo and the poi. It's also just the fresh produce. Here in Hawaii, we eat a lot of tropical fruit. Pineapple is not a native food. Mangoes are not a native food. Guavas, none of that stuff that are thought about as native foods are. But they've been part of our culture for so long. And a lot of people grew up with a mango tree in their backyard. And a fresh, like warm, sun ripened mango oh is just a very different thing and so good for you. And here in Washington State, I'm pretty sure your mangoes are coming from Mexico. It's good. hard
1: to find a good mango, not right? to knock Mexican mangoes, but Indian right? mango also. Yep. It's like sweet and well you don't want it to be sour or bitter.
0: Mango juice should go down your elbows. If it doesn't get to your elbow, it wasn't a good mango. It's mental health draining because food is so special and so important. So not having it, you fill the hole with other things, but it never satisfies the same way. And so you keep trying to satisfy that desire for connections to home. And I think providers have to try to talk to their patients about other ways to connect to home. Because the food is just never going to be the same. There's music, there's culture, there's other ways that we celebrate connecting that will fill that emotional hole that may not fill the physical craving for a a juicy, warm mango or fresh poi. Reminding folks there's other ways to connect to home, I think is a good thing for providers to think about, too, is put on some really... Just beautiful Hawaiian music, we call it nahe nahe, that just makes you cry when you listen to it. You're like, oh, I miss home. And just folks know how beautiful the islands are. And most of the people who are up there in Washington state, I can guarantee you, probably about half of them weren't like, oh, I'm looking for something gray, a little less sun, fewer beaches. Let's move to Washington. It's not probably what caused the move. Hawaii is the most expensive state in the entire country to live and families are not able to afford to live here. So they're looking for other places that they could start a life and be able to support their family and jobs and industry. Hawaii is a hard place to financially live and people leave because they can't afford to be here anymore. So when they show up in Washington state, not all of them are super happy to be there. And that's another mental health crisis is I was not able to live in my own land so when your provider says something like, "Hey, you're from Hawaii? I'm going there for vacation next week." May not be like what that island person really wants to hear. So, I mean, that's really common. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone tell me like, "Oh, you we went to Hawaii for last Christmas for holiday." It's like, "That's nice, but that's not a, a, an experience I can afford to do." So, you know, reminding providers to think about the fact that a lot of people who are up there, they're not there because they chose Washington State as their home. Mm -hmm. It became a place that they could afford to live, but they will never be home because it's not Hawaii. It's not the Pacific. The ocean isn't around you. Those tropical breezes that are coming in every window, they don't happen in Washington State. So providers should think about what they say to island people when they try to connect with them we most of the time don't want to hear about your vacation in waikiki
1: <laughs> i think that's a good pearl for yeah. well-intentioned maybe sometimes <laughs> exactly. ignorant providers right? <laughs> yeah thanks for joining me raj sundar in this episode of the healthcare for humans podcast if you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this work please share it with others and leave a review. As always, show notes can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. And feel free to contact me for feedback or show ideas through the website or through email at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. <laughs>